K-A-L-W. You know, you're putting a bunch of half-naked or naked people in a space together. There's just a lot of sensitivities and nuance and, and things to think about and, and how that sort of space is crafted and designed and cared for. There's a new spa in the Bay Area in an unexpected place. And everyone was just sort of laughing at us about wanting to start a bathhouse during a pandemic. And that's when, yeah, we found a listing on Craigslist for outdoor storage. Turning bathhouse dreams into reality. Then the Oakland police are involved in another scandal, and it's one that has a familiar ring to it. The command staff in the department has been accused of essentially orchestrating cover-ups, trying to hide them from the public. And we hear about a short story collection on the problems you face when you hit middle age. That's coming up. I'm Hanat Baba, and this is Cross Currents. On an empty shoreline lot in Richmond, between an abandoned industrial site and a shipping container that holds a ceramic studio, customers move between freestanding saunas, lounge chairs made out of industrial lumber, and the bay. This whole project, called Good Hot, was the brainchild of two architecture grads who wanted to avoid 60-hour-week desk jobs. Instead, they wanted to experiment and put their ideas of design for intimate communal space into practice. Reporter Max Harrison Caldwell has the story. It's Friday morning on Point San Pablo in Richmond. Truckers trundle past on Stenmark Drive and wake from the passing Vallejo Ferry laps against the rocky beach. Good Hot's first customers of the day are slipping into the steamy embrace of portable saunas. There are four saunas in all, cozy cubes of blonde wood, perched just above the shore on a patch of scrubby earth. Each is unique. One has bleacher-style seating, another two benches facing each other. Some have skylights, others circular windows on the walls and door. Inside each is the soft scent of Douglas fir lumber. Oh, and they're all built on trailers. It started in architecture school at UC Berkeley, when two classmates began to get disillusioned with their chosen profession. They didn't want to graduate straight to the bottom rung of a big firm, like many of their peers. Who often are underpaid, sort of a little bit precarious, have a bunch of student loans, um, maybe not quite certain of what they're getting into. That's Cooper Rogers. He and Amy Louie wanted to design with purpose and avoid being exploited. So they started thinking about projects they could tackle on their own. As a student, Amy had the chance to pursue a years-long interest in bathing cultures and embark on a tour of the world's bathhouses. Iceland and, and Finland, Japan and Korea, Morocco, Turkey. Did I say Finland already? Amy was inspired by the communal quality born of a bunch of strangers relaxing together. You know, you're putting a bunch of half-naked or naked people in a space together. There's just a lot of sort of sensitivities and nuance and and things to think about and and how that, that sort of space is crafted and designed and cared for. Amy says they often felt distant from the big buildings they drew as an architecture student, and thinking about how to design for a vulnerable physical experience was more interesting. This interest soon turned into a plan to create a bathhouse, 
Even before they graduated, they and Cooper started scouting Oakland warehouse spaces to renovate and reaching out to landlords and banks. And everyone was just sort of laughing at us about wanting to start a bathhouse during a pandemic. And that's when, yeah, we found a listing on Craigslist for outdoor storage at Point San Pablo. They started imagining what an outdoor sauna could look like. There couldn't be any brick and mortar building. Which was kind of at, I think, like at conflict with some of our like initial schemes and ideas for what this bathhouse could be, which is this sort of like very warm, protected space. Amy and Cooper say that when they visited the plot, they were enchanted with the scenery. The bay, cars sparkling like beetles on the San Rafael Bridge, Mount Tam looming behind. But how could this windswept stretch of shoreline foster the sense of safety and intimacy that they wanted to evoke in a bathhouse? Well, the duo made do, deciding on saunas mounted on trailers. Instead of tile floors, they built wooden plank ramps leading up to them. Instead of the series of thresholds they'd imagined would create a sense of escape and privacy in their bathhouse, they used wooden barriers to mark the limits of their space. In short, the site really forced them to get creative. The design of Good Hot was exciting because it's sort of like a deconstructed bathhouse, sort of like an explosion of all the parts of a bathhouse that now could kind of be arranged in a way that kind of rejected a more kind of rigid movement through, or, or like dictated movement through a space. The co-founders wanted to create a sense of security, and they did that through natural lighting, various seating arrangements, and the placement of the saunas. A sort of circling of the wagons, like where the saunas pool together to create a sort of communal space. Cooper says he and Amy also paid special attention to the orientation of the windows. A circular window looks out on the bay, making it really easy to take a nicely framed photo. Windows on the doors face out toward the other saunas, enhancing the feeling of a tiny village square. And then the third component was seating. Um, so how you can sort of arrange up to six people sitting in a, essentially a seven by eight footprint. So were they successful? What is the effect of these sauna trailers? Well, unsurprisingly, Amy and Cooper didn't want me bothering their customers. So I brought two friends on a chilly January morning to find out. So y'all are in the big sauna. It's the one right in front of us. Entrance is just on the other side. Um, there's changing rooms to the right. Uh, and then there's a toilet on the back side as well. Um, stairs down in the water on the left. With only three people in the big sauna, the one that can accommodate eight, we had plenty of room to stretch out. And some people couldn't wait to start sweating. Jared exercised no patience and started doing push-ups <laughs> immediately upon entering. Will Young and Jared Glazer are two friends who are in the group I first went to Good Hot with nearly a year ago. Jared is currently in his last semester as an architecture student at UC Berkeley. And though he doesn't know Amy and Cooper personally, he heard about their operation early on and suggested we go check it out. This was our third excursion together, and the first where I forgot to wear contacts. <laughs> Your glasses look crazy. <laughs> After getting good and sweaty, it was time to take the polar plunge. So we ran down the 10 steps to the bay and braced ourselves for hypothermic shock. How is it in there, Jared? Oh, guys, you should come in. It's nice. And then to hit the outdoor showers. Holy, wow. This water is really cold too. 
Another half hour in the sauna and our time was up. After getting dressed, we drank herbal tea on wooden lounge chairs and debriefed. They just brought over a second pot of tea. Jared is an experienced bather. I've saunaed every day almost for four years. So I wanted to know how this experience stacked up to his regular post-gym schwitz. It's a real social event that we can plan our whole days around. Going to a sauna in, in a gym, you get sweaty, but I don't think you're really put in the, the same frame of mind. For Will, the contrast between the saunas and their industrial surroundings adds to the experience. The scenery on the drive-in makes it extra surprising when you arrive. And all of a sudden, a moment of bliss where you're, you know, watching a sailboat cross the bay. This sudden bliss has made Good Hot a hit. Online reservations first went live in late 2021, and co-founder Cooper Rogers says before long, new faces were showing up. We haven't done any marketing. It's only been word of mouth, and it started just with friends and all of a sudden somebody would show up that we didn't know and we were like Who, how what, did you find this now cooper and amy louie have their hands full maintaining the saunas a learning experience in itself if they build another sauna on wheels amy says they'll make sure to lay the floorboards perpendicular to the entrance so it's easier to sweep sand out the door They've also added cubbies for customers' shoes and bags and the big wooden lounge chairs we sampled. It's been just over a year since the scrappy operation opened, and though it started as a pop-up, it's now a permitted business. For the founders, this allays some of the anxiety that they'll be forced to hitch their sauna trailers to trucks and drive them away at a moment's notice. Now, Amy and Cooper are starting to think about putting down roots. We're starting to sort of, I think, get comfortable with the idea that it might be around for a long time. And we were talking about actually planting plants in the ground recently, as opposed to in a planter that could be forklifted onto a truck and driven away. And though a certain sense of precarity remains, business has been good. The founders are hopeful that running Good Hot can ultimately serve as the dream job they imagined as students. In Richmond, I'm Max Harrison Caldwell for Cross Currents. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hanat Baba. In Oakland, Police Chief Lerone Armstrong is demanding to be reinstated to his job a month after he was suspended by Mayor Sheng Tao following a report on how he allegedly mishandled disciplining a popular sergeant in two incidents. Armstrong's suspension comes amid what some had hoped would be the end of 20 years of federal monitoring of the OPD. Monitoring that was aimed at reforming its operations that have been plagued by scandals involving its officers. Darwin Von Graham is the co-author of the book, The Writers Come Out at Night. It chronicles the department's long struggle with internal corruption. KLW news editor Sunni Khalid spoke with him about the OPD. 
Where do we stand as far as Chief Armstrong's tenure with the department? Chief Armstrong is from Oakland. He was born and raised there. He's very popular with some segments of the community. And he was on track to help the department complete this now 20-year-old federal reform effort. He and his staff had brought OPD into compliance with a handful of the remaining tasks that needed to be done. But he was placed on administrative leave because it appears that there are problems with the disciplinary process. And Armstrong at this point in time stands accused of essentially allowing a sergeant who was involved in a hit and run and later kind of mysteriously discharged his firearm in a freight elevator in the OPD headquarters. Armstrong stands accused of allowing that sergeant to get away with that conduct with very little punishment. At this point in time, though, we don't know really what Armstrong did or did not do because there are several confidential reports and about 19 interviews with officers and witnesses as part of this investigation that only a small handful of people have seen, like that includes maybe the mayor of Oakland and the federal monitor and a few others, but no members of the public or press have seen these documents. So we really don't know if Armstrong did or did not do these things. Well, can you tell me about the genesis of the report that triggered this action by Clarence Dyer and Cohen? There's a sergeant in the department named Michael Chung. He was the leader of the department's new drone unmanned aerial vehicle unit. And he was also assigned to the Chinatown community area. Sergeant Chung and another officer who he appears to have been in a dating relationship with, they were in an OPD vehicle in a parking garage in Chung's apartment building in San Francisco when Chung crashed the SUV into a car and ripped the bumper off of it and did over $10,000 in damage. He did not stop or leave his contact information. He did not file a police report about the collision. And so it was viewed as a hit and run. But the internal affairs commander at the Oakland Police Department who eventually learned about the hit and run when the insurance agency for the damaged car's owner contacted the city of Oakland, the internal affairs commander ordered his subordinates, the investigators looking into this incident, to reduce their findings so that a hit and run wasn't one of the things that they found this sergeant to have engaged in. Instead, they found only that he was in a preventable vehicle collision, and he received a slap on the wrist as punishment. He got counseling instead of being fired from the department. When this was learned, this same officer, months later, was in a freight elevator at OPD headquarters, and for some reason, he pulled his gun out and shot the wall of the elevator with his weapon, and he then wanted to cover this up, so he grabbed the shell casing and later in the day threw it off the Bay Bridge into the San Francisco Bay, destroying evidence. So this was two crimes. This was a negligent discharge of a firearm in a public place, the police headquarters, and destruction of evidence of that crime. When this was learned within the department, 
they decided to review the prior investigation of the auto collision. And so at that point, the cases were taken out of the hands of the police department and the city was made by its federal monitor to hire this outside law firm to look into these things. Now, this takes place during the time when the U.S. Judge William Oreck had ordered that basically OPD had completed most of the work on its this 20-year uh, reform process, and they're in a sustainability period. So this almost seems like the worst luck, like right when they're ready to emerge from under this federal supervision, some of the old problems that have dogged the Oakland Police Department for all these years come to fore. In some ways, it echoes what happened in 2016 when then-police chief Sean Wendt was found to have mishandled and sort of allowed for the cover-up of what was really a much more shocking and horrible underlying case of police misconduct and criminal activity by numerous police officers in the department and other police agencies in the Bay Area. And I'm referring to the sexual exploitation scandal in which a young woman who was actually a girl, a minor, a 17-year-old, when one officer allegedly raped her and then she was 18 and multiple officers in the department sexually exploited her over the period of several months. Prior to that case coming to light, Sean Wint had been making incredible progress on advancing the Oakland Police Department toward its reform goals. And there were discussions in Oakland about maybe later in late 2015, early 2016, they expected that they would be able to complete the negotiated settlement agreement and come out from a federal oversight and regain full independence. That didn't happen, of course, because of that scandal. The allegations around what's happening right now echo it in some ways in the sense that the really important thing here isn't so much that some police officers in the department broke the law or did something, you know, violated rules. That's to be expected in any big organization with a lot of employees. People are always going to do bad stuff. But what these two moments, the 2016 case and this present case, really the crux of it is that the command staff in the department has been accused of essentially orchestrating cover-ups of both of these things, trying to hide them from the public and hide them from the police monitor. And the problems they point toward are ones in which the police are not able to police themselves. That was Darwin Bond Graham, Oakland Side News Editor and co-author of the book The Writers Come Out at Night. He spoke with KELW News Editor Sunni Khalid, and that interview was produced by Andrew Saint Singh. This is Cross Currents. I'm Hanat Baba. Addiction, death, 
romantic affairs, those are some of the problems that characters face in the short story collection The New Low. In it, author Jennifer Lewis tells stories about middle-aged people trying to figure out life. Lewis is known in the Bay Area literary community for showcasing writers, and she's also the co-founder of Red Light Lit, a small press and reading series that explore topics like love, sexuality, and identity. The New Low is her debut collection. KLW's Janae Darden spoke with Jennifer Lewis. From tech journalists Mm -hmm. to Red Light Lit, I want to talk about Red Light Lit. It's a great reading you know, series and show about sexuality and intimacy. I've been honored to be a part of it. Which was a really special, that was a special show. The Red Light Lit is definitely, it's been a place of, you know, self-expression and a platform for me to promote writers that I really care about. The fact that it's in the love relationship, sexuality and gender theme is really interesting because a lot of writers will come to me and say, I don't have a red light lit story. And that's not true. Like everyone writes about love relationships, you know, in, in one way or another. And it doesn't necessarily have to be romantic. So it's given me an opportunity to really showcase emerging writers, people who I think who are really good that maybe don't have the audience yet. So let's talk about your work, your writing, this book, The New Low, this collection of short stories. And you write in the foreword that the book explores what happens to people when they cling to youth and beauty, hide their addictions, and compartmentalize motherhood. Why did you go with these themes and are any of them personal to you? Yeah, I think in in some ways they're all deeply personal. This book is a work of fiction. I will say there's two creative nonfiction stories within the book, three actually um, within it, but the rest are really acts of fiction. And even if the character resembles me, it's still a character, but I'm able through fiction to kind of tackle different topics like addiction in a, in a fictional way, which is exciting. Youth and beauty, you know, that's as far as clinging to it, that's the theme. Um, Why that? Well, I think, again, a lot of it is in conversation with, you know, cultural kind of maybe taboos in some ways, where I feel like women's value is wrapped in appearances and how, you know, like we're sold so many products and we're trying to stay young. And a lot of it is... You know, it's funny because, you know, I'm older, (laughs) much older now than a lot of these stories. And to be honest, I I don't really think about any of those topics anymore. I'm more at peace with my age and where I am in my life. But at that point, I think I was being sold like, oh, you're getting older, you're becoming irrelevant. Just a lot of taboos that I don't think exist anymore. But at the time, I was feeling them and maybe the cultural pressures. Why the title The New Low? Yeah, I think the new low in some ways, I wanted to write about people's rock bottom and how we keep thinking like, this is a new low and something else drops. And I I feel like, you know, the way that we're receiving information with, you know, the internet or our phones, there's just always this new low. We just feel like each day brings something that's worse than the next. You know, and the people, Jennifer, the people in the stories, they feel real. And I never know how you're going to end the story. And people have to buy the book to know what I'm talking about. I feel like, is this a reflection of real life? 
Well, I mean, honestly, I do think the stories reflect real life, even though the actual events in the stories don't. Like, for example, the Nulo, I've changed that ending so many times. And like, there is like a part of me that wants the safer ending. And so I had to be like, well, what's what's the not safe ending? And so I flipped a lot and played with these stories forever. So hopefully for me, I worked on the endings and all of them are a surprise in some way. Or yeah, they change, are. Yeah, or a change in point of view. So when you think, oh, this is the protagonist, these two people are awful. And then I will switch and be like, actually... I don't know if that story's true. Like maybe the protagonist is awful and the antagonists are the the better people in the story. How has motherhood impacted you as an artist? So the the three kind of creative nonfiction stories in there are the the story that you mentioned, Put a Teat in It, which is just about the experience of using a breast pump and kind of how humiliating it is. And so that was something, you know, I think sometimes when women write about motherhood, it becomes domestic. It becomes like, you know, kind of female. And really, it's existential and intellectual. And then the other stories are the beating, which is actually the birth story of my daughter, um, my oldest daughter, which I had a cesarean birth. And in some ways, I kind of thought about writing that story as like a Lars Van Trier film in some ways because it it was barbaric in some ways because I had this vision of this other birth and then I had, you know, this kind of, you know, surgical birth that I didn't envision. And in some ways, I felt like I, I died on that table and my my youth and my innocence. And then I was supposed mm. to perform motherhood. What, what, what was the third story that you oh, said? The third, was... the third story is Holy Communion. And, ah, okay. yeah, and, and that story a lot is about, you know, childhood wounds from the news, from existential, like just horror. And so a lot of that you know, was recorded. Me trying to face my fears so I can grow into this mother and protector. That was writer Jennifer Lewis speaking with KELW's Janae Darden. Lewis's collection, The New Low, is available from Nomadic Press. You can find out more at KELW.org slash crosscurrents. Today's Cross Currents team includes Astrid Fettel, Kelby McIntosh, James Rollins, Ganadi Joe Johnson, Victor Tense, Shirin Hadid, Lisa Morehouse, Marissa Ortega-Welch, Sunni Khalid, and Ben Trefney. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet, as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Hannah Baba.